If you obey my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are the descendants of Abraham, and we have never been anybody's slaves. What do you mean, then, by saying you will be free? I am telling you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave does not belong to a family permanently, but a son belongs there forever. If the son sets you free, then you will be really free. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are trying to kill me because you will not accept my teaching. I talk about what my father has shown me. But you do what your father has told you. My father is Abraham. If you really were Abraham's children, you would do the same things that he did. All I have ever done is to tell you the truth I heard from God, yet you are trying to kill me. Abraham did nothing like this. You were doing what your father did. God himself is the only father we have, and we are his true children. If God really were your father, you would love me, because I came from God, and now I am here. I did not come on my own authority, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to listen to my message. You are the children of your father, the devil! And you want to follow your father's desires! From the very beginning, he was a murderer and has never been on the side of truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he is only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar and the father of all lies! But I tell the truth and that is why you do not believe me. Which one of you can prove that I am guilty of sin? If I tell the truth, then why do you not believe me? He who comes from God listens to God's words. You, however, are not from God. And that is why you will not listen. Were we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon in you? I have no demon. I honor my father, but you dishonor me. I am not seeking honor for myself, but there is one who is seeking it and who judges in my favor. I am telling you the truth. Whoever obeys my teaching will never die. Now we know for sure that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets died. Yet you say that whoever obeys your teaching will never die. Our father Abraham died. You do not claim to be greater than Abraham, do you? And the prophets also died. Who do you think you are? If I were to honor myself, that honor would be worth nothing. The one who honors me is my father, the very one you say is your God. You have never known him, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a lie like you, but I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he was to see the time of my coming. He saw it and was glad. You are not even 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. <laughs> I am telling you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am.
Then they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself and left the temple. One of the great truths that's difficult for us to comprehend is that God's design for us, why he created us, is to experience fullness of life in him. Over and over again, the scriptures tell us God created us to experience the fullness of who he is relationship with him, his love, his mercy, his grace, his joy, his truth. But we struggle to believe that because of our sinful natures, because we live in a world of pain and difficulties and struggles. Life is hard. Life doesn't end up the way we want it to. People hurt us. We hurt people. And all of these things create in us a a doubt about whether God is who he says he is, that God's plan and desire is what he says it is for us. And so throughout the scriptures, he's continually revealing himself as the God who is who he says he is. And Jesus comes to reveal that in the most profound way to us. And the season of Epiphany, this time, the word Epiphany means manifestation, revelation. And Jesus comes to reveal to us the fullness of who God is. Not just so we can know who he is, but so that we can experience in our lives what he desires and created us to experience. One of the ways in which Jesus reveals that is through his his self-declaratory statements. These statements where he says, I am this, I am this, I am this. And that begins and is focused right here in this passage that we've just seen on the screens played out for us. From John chapter 8. Jesus is there at the temple with a lot of people, some Jewish people, and some of the religious leaders, and they are having this discussion that gets pretty volatile. I mean, you know, Jesus says, You're children of the devil. They're saying, Jesus, you're demon possessed. I love the way this, this uh, drama depicts the disciples standing there. You can see the look in their faces like, Jesus, what are you doing here? 
uh, were outnumbered. They've got a lot of stones. These people are, these guys are strong. You know, you can see their eyes going, uh, what's happening here? And Jesus just keeps raising the ante as this conversation they have with each other. Until he says to them, if you believed in me and those who believe in me will never see death. And they say to Jesus, what are you talking about? What do you mean never see death? Abraham died. The prophets died. All of the great people of God died. And you're saying people who believe in you will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Jesus says, well, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham got pretty excited thinking about me coming into the world. And in fact, when he witnessed it, he was ecstatic. And they're saying, what? You're not even 50 years old. And you saw Abraham who lived 2,000 years ago? What are you talking about? You're a fool. You're an idiot. What do you mean? And Jesus says, let me put it this way. Before Abraham was even born, I am. And they pick up stones to kill him. They have to wonder why in the world that little phrase, I mean, they, it seems to me he said a lot more volatile things before that, calling them children of the devil, than to simply say, before Abraham was, I am. Why does that get them so angry? Why do they pick up stones to stone him? Because they understand what he's saying. They understand, the minute they hear Jesus speak those words, I am, their minds race back to the third chapter of Exodus that we read earlier. Moses in the burning bush. He has this encounter with God, and God says to Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and to be the, the, the person to bring my people out of slavery, out of bondage. You're my man. And Moses, who's scared to death about this, says, okay, if I go and I tell the Israelites, God said, I'm here to rescue you, who do I tell them sent me? And God says, I am who I am. You tell them, I am sent me to you. And he says, this is my name by which I will be known from now on. I am. In Greek is the phrase ego eimi. Jesus says, before Abraham was, ego eimi. I am. In Hebrew, it's what we figured out. The Jews finally figured out the word, what we use the term Yahweh. It is such a personal precious name to the Jews. They don't even pronounce it. In our English Bibles, it's typically capital L-O-R-D, Lord. It's capitalized. You see that phrase over and over again. It is the personal name of God. 
There is an intimacy to this name, so much so that we don't, they don't talk, they don't use that name for God. It's too personal. It's too holy. This name describes God who is indescribable. This name refers to the God who is the creator, the almighty, all-powerful, the holy one. This is the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the earth, the God who, who spoke to Abraham, the God who promised to Abraham, the God who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who established David and his throne, the God before whom all people on the earth bow in worship. This is the God for whom there is no other. The God who is completely other than any human being. And Jesus says, I am that God. No wonder they pick up stones to throw at him. We think of the most holy person you can imagine. Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, I don't know. The most holy person you can imagine. As awesome as they are, what would you think if they said, I am God? That would disturb us. You know, we get pretty impatient with these religious leaders and with the Jewish people. This is a huge smack across the side of their heads for Jesus to say this. Philip Yancey talks about Jesus' claim to be God, and he says it is, it is such a radical thing for him to do this. You can't imagine in any other religions, you can't imagine any, any Muslim believing that or being comfortable with the fact that even Muhammad himself would claim to be Allah. Or a, or a Jew believing that Moses claimed to be Yahweh. It's not a part of any other religion. And yet here is Jesus saying he is God. And it's foundational to our theology and our faith that Jesus is fully God, fully human. We've just celebrated Christmas and the coming of Christ into the world. As this human being and fully human. And now Jesus is declaring he is fully God. The God. Yahweh. Brings us back to what Lewis said in Mere Christianity. That you know Jesus making the claims that he does. He can't just be a great moral teacher. As some people want to say that he is. The heresies through the ages have been typically either. Jesus is is fully God, but not really human. He's just sort of a ghost, or he appeared to be human. Or the other side of it, that he is fully human, but he's not really God. He's just this great teacher. And Lewis says it's impossible to take Jesus at his word. He said he's, he, he's, he either has to be who he says he is, or is a lunatic, like in the way of someone who's saying that they're a poached egg. Or is it... The devil of hell. He said, but you got to choose. Either he is who he says he is, the son of God, or he is this raving lunatic. And people want to say, well, he's not one or the other, but the, the Jews understand what he's saying. 
It's clear to them that he is declaring himself to be God. And it's blasphemy to them. I was talking with someone about this recently, and they were saying, do the Jews believe that they're right, or are they just being obstinate? I I think they believe that they are right. In, In the same way that Fred Phelps and the people of Westboro Baptist Church believe that they are right, to print anti-gay slogans on placards and picket at the funerals of soldiers. They believe they're defending the truth. They believe that they are defending God. They believe that they are right. And we look at that and we think it's appalling. But the Jewish leaders are saying, you got to have some rules. This is what we've been, we believe all of our lives. And now for someone to come along and to say that, that they are reinterpreting or they are, they are fulfilling what we have been believing and they're, they're putting cracks in the walls we've created, we can't handle that. It can't be so. It's interesting to me that this story, this dialogue is bookended with two stories about two people who are completely different than the religious leaders. At the beginning of John chapter 8, you have the story of the woman caught in adultery. At the beginning of chapter 9, you have the story of a man who's been born blind. Both of these people are outcasts in the culture, in the temple. Both of these people are considered not just insignificant, but cursed by God. No one sees anything good in either of these people. That's why they are who they are. And yet, when Jesus encounters these two people, they are open to him and are transformed. While the conversation that takes place in between with the people who ought to know better, the people who who breathe the very air of the temple, these people dig in their heels and put up barriers, and even threaten to kill Jesus. It's ironic. And it says something to me about about the way we approach the, the surprising ways in which God speaks into our lives. See, most of us here, this is the scary thing, most of us here, if we're honest, have to realize we identify a lot more with the religious leaders who are having this conversation with Jesus than with the two people who book in the story. Most of us have a relationship with Christ, have an affinity to Christ, or have a, have a sense of wanting to be followers of Christ. And my question that I've been the question I've been asking myself and the question I'm asking you is as we walk and journey with Christ and as we establish what we believe and how we live as followers of Christ, is there any place in this for God to speak into our lives in ways that might surprise us? It might challenge us. 
so that we can experience the fullness of God that he desires for us. Someone was telling me recently about a friend who I think made a posting on Facebook that they said that they have, they try to go into every conversation with someone with a mindset that at some point in their day and in their lives, they're going to be proven wrong about something they, they feel strongly about. And so they go into every conversation thinking, this, is this the moment when I'm going to be proved wrong? And especially when conversations get a little bit volatile, they're trying to think, trying to have a mindset that says, is, is this the moment when actually that person's right and I'm not? And there's something of that spirit in what we see in this story. See, I'm convinced that if we are going to experience the fullness of God's life that he desires for us, it begins with us having a a willingness to acknowledge our brokenness, our sinfulness, that we have not arrived completely. That we don't know everything there is to know. That we haven't figured out everything that there is to figure out. And on the surface, we might right away say, well, of course, there's always more to learn. But let's be honest. About how we live and about what we believe, we, we dig our heels in pretty strongly that this is right and there is no other way of thinking about it. You look at this story, and in the first part of of this dialogue, Jesus says to these people, the truth will, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And their response is defensiveness. You know, that's what we tend to do. We get backed against the wall, and and people are challenging our beliefs, and and we're wrestling with how to answer, and we're feeling sort of like, uh, maybe they're right, I may be wrong. What do we do? We tend to get defensive. And when we get defensive, we tend to exaggerate and maybe even worse. And it's exactly what they do. They get back against the wall and they say to Jesus, what are you talking about setting us free? We're not in bondage. In fact, they say, we have never been in bondage. Well, that's a head scratcher. Really? I mean, did you, do you, do you remember Egypt at all? 400 years, slavery, pyramids, all those things? Do you remember that? I mean, do you remember the exile when you were led by, with rings in your noses to Babylon for 70 years? Quite frankly, look around. There were Roman soldiers posted all around this place watching you work. You've never been in bondage? And we laugh at that, but we say, but let's be honest. How many times do we say, oh, I'm fine. Nothing wrong with me. I'm okay. They're the ones that have problem, not me. Not my issue. We will never experience the fullness of God's life in us until we are able to acknowledge that we don't know everything, that we are broken people, that we wrestle with sin, that God always has more and more to do in our lives, that we haven't arrived. And we've been, sometimes we've been taught through the ages that holiness means we've arrived. Holiness means we figured it out, we're perfect. Everything is done. 
I am convinced the most holy people are the people who acknowledge their brokenness. It's one of the reasons why we put in our vision statement on those bookmarks that when the Holy Spirit makes us the church that we believe we are intended to be, one of the things that we will see as the Holy Spirit works in us is that we as a congregation will acknowledge our personal and corporate brokenness. Holy people are not arrogant. We're humble because we know who we are and we know how much we need Christ. Craig Barnes says that one of the most important functions of the church is the role of forcing us to confront the truth about ourselves. Individually and corporately. And you look at this story and you see that these are people Jesus is encountering who don't want to acknowledge that. And what ends up happening? And you look at the stories in the Gospels and every single person who is transformed by Jesus acknowledges their need. That's not a coincidence. But I also think that the opposite side of that is it's not just acknowledging our need, but it's living with a spirit of openness and being willing to allow God to speak into our lives in any way he chooses to, through anyone he chooses to, at any time and anywhere, that we have such a spirit of openness to, this, to God speaking into our lives that we're always looking for him, always thinking about him. Now, again, I, listen, I'm not talking about living with the spirit of relativism. You know, everything is relative. We just sort of, you know, there, there are no absolutes. That's not what I'm talking about at all. There are, there are core truths that we see in Scripture that are essential, and, and we don't budge on those things. They're, they're essential to us. But I suspect for most of us, there are probably fewer of those than we often want to admit. And I also find that too often, the things that we are most dogmatic about are not the core things, they're the peripheral things. How we live our lives, how we worship. Some of the ways in which we, we embrace and, and, and talk about our theology. Do we live with a spirit of prayerful openness to God? That whoever God might want to bring into our lives, however unlikely they may be, that God may want to speak to us through them. In fact, I think, if you think about the person or the circumstance that you would say is the least likely to ever have anything to say to you about God or to teach you or to challenge you, my guess is there's a good chance that's exactly the person or the circumstance through which God wants to speak to you, as he does me. Because it tests our willingness to be open to however God wants to work. 
and through whomever God wants to work. And that's the spirit of openness that we're called to as followers of Jesus. Are we willing to let him do that? Speak into our lives. You know, as I was reading this story, I was thinking about, you know, these stones that they pick up to throw at Jesus. Where do these stones come from? And I think the video was right. I think the temple is probably in a state of construction probably almost all the time. And, and these stones that they pick up are, are probably the stones that are part of the construction process. And isn't it interesting that the stones that are intended to be used to build God's temple are instead used in an attempt to kill God's son? And the more I thought about that, the more I began to contemplate the metaphor that 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 is for our lives. Because I think there are things that God gives us, things that are intended to, as means of worship, building the kingdom, that we use to tear down and to destroy. When you think about the gift of Scripture... Scripture that is given to us so that we can know God and understand God and know what it means to live for God. How often do we use Scripture as a club to beat people with? How often do we use Scripture to justify our behavior that isn't like Christ? We use Scripture to tear down and to divide instead of to unify and to build up and to encourage and to, and to establish the kingdom and the church and God's presence. And it becomes a stone that instead of we use, using it to build, we use it to tear down. About worship. You know, worship, God's gift that we use that, to help us know him and to, to praise him and to learn from him. How often does worship become something divisive instead of unifying? Think about the different styles of worship. Maybe your thing is tradition and you love the traditional kinds of worship. And you, maybe your style is contemporary. And maybe coming together in a service like this is really hard for you. Because what you really want is what you want out of worship and and I want it to be the way I want it to be and I don't like blending it and I don't like hearing contemporary music or I don't like hearing the organ or I don't like the the style of the worship and it's a great challenge to to come together and I want to commend you for being willing to do that but through the history I mean it's sad that one of the terms that has worked its way into the church is worship wars I mean talk about oxymoron But it's a stone that we throw instead of a stone we use to build. And we can go on and on, our theological perspectives. You know, I I believe this way, you believe that way. So therefore, we really have nothing to teach each other. We're just going to fight with each other about it. Instead of, we may see things differently, but I'm sure you're biblical as I'm trying to be biblical. And I know there are things you can teach me and maybe I have things I can teach you. It's that spirit of openness. And instead of throwing stones, we use them to build. 
As I was reading through this passage again this week, verse 37 just struck me. I've read this passage many, many times. I never saw this before. But verse 37, Jesus says to them, you're trying to kill me because you have no room for my word. And I thought, wow. And I asked myself the question, as I get so wrapped up in what I believe, so wrapped up in how I think the faith should look, so wrapped up in how I practice my faith and how I live and what I think is right and what I'm sure is wrong, do I have any room in my life for the surprising, challenging, unsuspecting ways in which God wants to speak to me? Do you? I'm convinced that the difference between stones that build and stones that tear down and throw and injure is having room in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds for Christ, the Word of God. And again, I'm not talking about everything is relative. Please hear me. I'm not saying that. But I am convinced that if we're ever going to experience the fullness of God in our lives as we were created to experience, this fullness of joy and peace and love that comes from God, it will mean that we surrender. That we live with the spirit of prayerful openness. Continually asking God, what do you want to teach me? through this person? What do you want to teach me through this circumstance? What do you want to teach me through this this idea that I'm unfamiliar with or that I, I don't really want to acknowledge might have anything to say to me? And it doesn't mean that we agree about everything. It just simply means that we live with the spirit of prayerful openness to God. Because my prayer for me, my prayer for you, is that we would know the fullness of life in Christ. That we would look a whole lot more like the people who are transformed by Christ instead of the people who pick up stones to throw at Christ. So in this moment of contemplation and meditation, as you think about the gifts, the stones that God has given to you to build, to encourage, to grow. Do you have this spirit of surrender, openness to whatever, whomever, however God may want to speak 
to you and to me. In this moment of silence, let's listen to God. Heavenly Father, we believe that the truth will indeed set us free. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And we confess how often we live lives that are closed to you your spirit. We want to control life instead of letting you control us. We want comfortable and safe and you are mysterious and surprising. We so often settle for small lives and you want to fill us with Christ who is the life. So give us grace to have room in our hearts and our lives and our minds for you. That our stones may build as you intend. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.